Before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 36. As always, joined by the three amigos here. We got uh, Rich Diaz at Acorn Macro Consulting, and we've got uh, everyone's favorite boomer in his Patagucci jacket in his hotel room in Calgary without his microphone, Keith Dicker. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Um, so we'll have to apologize in advance for Keith's uh, crappy audio here, but uh, you guys can let him know maybe in the comment section of your disdain. <laughs> Uh, but let's uh, let's open this week's uh, episode up because there's just there's just a lot to talk about. Um, you know, we've got uh, the three of us. We've got like our own little group chat, you know, going and it was just lighting up all week because um, it's just been such a busy week and there's been just a, I mean, a shitstorm really. Um, bloodbath. <laughs> bloodbath. Yeah, Rich is trying to get into some some debates here, but I mean, I guess let's let's open it up with the world's most important central bank, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve, hiking rates seventy five basis points. Um, I think was the the largest rate hike they've they've done at a single meeting. I think since nineteen ninety four. Um, I don't know. Keith, I don't know if you watched the, um, you know, the, the presser with Powell there. I don't know if you have any comments, but it definitely seems like leading up to the to the press conference there, right? It was like initially it was supposed to be like you know fifty basis point rate hike, and then like some some article got leaked from from the Wall Street Journal, and in the markets basically you know pushed the Fed into seven. So what what? So I don't know if you have any take on this, but how that all sort of played out, and, and how you're looking at that. So first of all, I was working in '94. So back when they did have that 75 base points rate hike and that, at the time. So I was, you know, I was fairly new to the uh, industry and, um, you know, I was in the mutual fund business, horrible job, horrible, not a nice place I was working. And um, anyway, the, uh, so I was told, but hey, put all your conservative clients, you know, the little old ladies and everything in, in bond funds and they'll be fine. I'm like, okay, so I do that. And then literally three months later, like this carnage started to happen in the bond market. And so I go to like all these you know, like senior guys who I thought were smart, like selling mutual funds. I say, hey, what's going on with this? What do I tell? And they had no idea what was happening. And that's when I started realizing, you know, people who walk or walk the street thinking they know everything in the, in the market, in the industry. And it turns out there's not a lot of depth out there. So I just want to put that out there. That was my first time. I said, you know what? I need to be skeptical if I'm going to survive in, in this in this industry. And, uh, you know, a few years later, now I'm, I'm still here. I'm surviving because of this, the skepticism that's there. With the Fed yesterday, uh, so, that, you know, they pre-announced last week. So it shouldn't have been a, a surprise at all that they did 75. The big thing everyone was waiting for was in the presser when uh, Powell... I forget how the wordy went, but he, he specifically stated that it's unlikely we'll do 75 again. So we will be doing 50 or 25 going forward. But that was the big takeaway. So if there was a big rally yesterday afternoon after that comment was made. 
And then overnight, I think everyone sort of died to digest really where we're going here with the economy. You know, Rich has a strong view on, on that as well. But you know, we open up here this morning, which is Thursday, right? For everyone understanding what when we're recording this. And uh, it's, it's a lot of red out there right now. But again, this continues to move as we expect it would. So the um, year-to-date total return for Bloomberg Global Bond Aggregate Index <clears throat> uh, down 15% year-to-date. Uh, it's the worst performance uh, in, in record, uh, on record. So I, I, yeah, Rich, uh, curious to hear your thoughts. Any sort of commentary from the Fed? Uh, obviously, again, the testicular fortitude is out in full range uh, with the 75 beeps. I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I just got a couple. One, I think um, I I'm, I guess I was wrong. I guess they did have the guts to do what I think is right. I think what, what a lot of people um, like me have been calling for a long time. Um, just remember, I think things were way too easy. Stimulus was too strong, both from monetary side and the, and the government side. And for the central bank to come out and raise as fast and as aggressively as they have, Man, if you had asked, I was definitely wrong about that. I did not think they had the guts, the gumption, the stones, the tomatoes, or any other fruit and vegetables necessary to do it. Um, I mean, that's 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 right away was my my thought. Um, I think it's important to contextualize still where we are um, with respect to yes, there's been a lot of rate hikes, but it's important to understand number one that you know there's something called the Taylor Rule which is, you know, useful in assessing um, sort of what should or shouldn't be um, the, in, the central bank interest rate. Um, it's based on um, employment and inflation data. Um, and, you know, let's, you know, and it's, you know, it was a rule that was instituted by, I think, a Federal Reserve um, board member under George Bush in the 90s. I always screwed this up. So, but anyway, so that Taylor rule, it, um, is useful. There are some really crazy Republicans that think that that's exactly what the Fed should do all the time and never, ever, ever think about it, never deviate from that Taylor rule. Not sure that that's such a good idea. But the Taylor rule right now, depending on how you calculate it, of course, is between probably seven and 8%. And we're at 175 um, on the Fed funds rate. And then so that you say, Rich, why is that important? It's just that m- money is still relatively easy. I think it's still important to sort of contextualize, yes, rates are up, but inflation is really, really, really high and the market is still really, really tight. And then the other thing is, again, contextualizing that rate hike is that real interest rates are still negative. Um, Depending on how you calculate it, it's still negative 4% if you use headline PCE. So yes, interest rates are much higher than they were a little while, but I think it's more of a function of um, the liquidity. People got caught off guard, I think, um, same way I did. Um, And rather than is policy tight rather than the, the delta, if that makes any sense. I mean, yeah, I want to get to, to liquidity in a bit because there's uh, there's quite a bit happening in the crypto space, which, you know, I oh, yeah. we have to participated <laughs> somewhat in, from the retail side. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but uh, we'll get into that. But uh, just circling this back, circling the drain here for, for Canadians and, you know, kind of what this means moving forward. So obviously, you know, with the Fed moving 75 basis points this week, uh, so that's basically put some additional pressure on the Bank of Canada. Uh, so markets are pricing in about 85% odds right now of a 75 basis point rate hike from the Bank of Canada in July. Um, so that uh, that will certainly bring a lot more pressure because again, 
a couple things to quickly touch on here from the housing front. Uh, we also got some more recent uh, national housing data update for the month of May. So I can quickly touch on those statistics, but just kind of what this means here moving forward is basically, um, and Keith, Rich, I'd love to hear your thoughts afterwards here is just, again, the, the movement that we've seen in the bond market, again, not just in Canada, but around the world, the movements in the bond market, which is basically uh, creating, I think, some uneasiness in the Eurozone and in, in Japan, but uh, as well here domestically for Canadians is we've seen this huge movement in the bond market. So for example, the Canada five-year bond yield's been ripping. So your typical mortgage now, we just had Scotiabank uh, price, they just increased their five-year fixed rate mortgage. That's now at about, I think it's about 5.2% is their advertised five-year fixed rate. So all the other banks will follow. So we're basically now in 5% mortgage rate territory. We have not been there since I believe 2007. Um, and so what you have to kind of, what's, what's important here is like, not only is this going to impact people's ability to sort of service their mortgages and how much they can afford to carry, but it also impacts them from a mortgage qualification perspective, because you have to remember in Canada through our banking regulator, we have this mortgage stress test. And the stress test says, we will stress test you at a rate that is 2% above your contractual rate or a minimum of 5.25%. So because rates were always basically so low, basically people were always pretty much stress tested at 5.25%. Even though you're boring, you used to borrow, let's say 3%. So what happened, what's happening now is because your five-year fixed mortgage is at 5%, people have to qualify at basically 7%. So the bank will say, well, how much are we willing to lend you on the assumption that rates are 7%? And so this is kind of forcing a lot of people that are trying to squeeze in the housing market, they're kind of being forced into the variable segment. So that's kind of helped create, a, a, you know, some, some relief there. But again, even our variable rate mortgage now is getting close to three and a half, which means you have to qualify at five, you know, five and a half. And again, if the Bank of Canada moves 75 basis points next month, well, then all of a sudden your stress test, even for your variable rate mortgage is going to be at 6%. So long story short, uh, I think more pain to come for the Canadian housing sector uh, just a quick note on national sales figures. So national home sales down 22% year over year in May. That was off of all-time record highs last year. So I guess the year over year base effect is a little bit, um, you know, it's a tough one to beat. But we did have the second back-to-back -back monthly decline um, in the national home price index. Keep in mind this national home price index, it's a lagging indicator, it's smoothed out, but we, we did have back-to-back -back, uh, monthly declines. So the, the correction in, in Canadian housing is, is definitely underway. And I'm sure as we talked about, those corrections are more nuanced in some of the frothier areas, such as you know the suburban markets of Vancouver and Toronto. Steve, but, how surprised are you that we're already seeing articles from the CTV and the CBC uh, complaining about higher interest rates. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just think Canadians were, have been so like brainwashed into because Keith knows, right. It's like this one way trade, right? Like you get long Canadian real estate, you get long the banks and like everybody just lives and, you know, becomes a multimillionaire and, and retires, you know, have happily ever after. Right. So yeah, I mean, this is turning into a, a real, uh, you know, a real sandwich here. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think it's important to contextualize too, like, 
while people are like, well, we don't have a national housing market, I would definitely agree with that. But I think policymakers will always look at it from like a national perspective. And then, you know, because we create, they create policies from a national level. So like, even if like, for example, like did Alberta need the stress test like three years ago when prices were flat for the last 12 years? Probably not. Um, I, I think like it's very possible you could have a 30% plus correction in say the suburbs of Vancouver, Toronto, and then only, and have flat prices in, in parts of Alberta and whatnot. So yeah, I think there's segments that are going to be impacted more so than others, but uh, I don't know if you guys have any sort of thoughts on, on any of this. I have one. So first of all, Rich, uh, John Taylor. Yep. He was actually the, uh, the, the bass guitarist for a, a band called Duran Duran. <laughs> oh he just moonlighted as a fed chairman or a fed board member is that it yeah he went back and forth sometimes okay but, cool uh, yeah very cool. yeah very very uh multi-talented oh good position yeah very and, good and monetary very good. guy uh so watch really great right now and you, like I, I, you know we've been talking about some dark things happening for a while and um and it's not because we're dark. I think we're all happy, happy well, guys. You, you're dark. You, you, <laughs> I'm in the dark right now. You look yeah. like. What do I look like? Uh, it's like one of those Queen videos. For the people who can't, have... for the people listening on on, on and not watching, you look like uh, an Andy Warhol self portrait right now. <laughs> Sorry, he was, that's okay. Andy was a handsome man. He was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see here. But what's really, I always see these things as, as opportunities. So, uh, you know, we're actually, with Icecap, we're having a really good year performance-wise in that we're down a little bit, but like we're, we're looking really good. So, and the reason for that, because we were able to anticipate. Yeah, I said I can confirm that. Free <clears throat> yeah. plug. Um, but what's different now around the world is that it's not just one country or one market that's experiencing stress everyone is experiencing a stress at the same time. So, I mean, I think in Canada, we all know what that stress is, is the housing market. And if it does break, it, it breaks the banks at the same time. And the, the Bank of Canada, even though they're being very aggressive right now, and I, I think they'll go 75. I think we might have a Twinkie coming up soon, but I'm early on this one. I think they will be a 75 rate hike. Well, they're basically um, being pressured into it, right? I mean, I almost feel like, like markets are just pushing them there. Yeah, they're being bullied. I think they're being bullied politi uh, politically myself. I think that's what's happened here. But uh, even if though the market does start to break in Canada, they will turn on the dime and they'll come in and rescue the banks and, and indirectly housing by immediately, you know, reversing everything that they've been doing. But we're not there yet. Like has to be, that event has to happen. But, but back to uh, like, if we look at the list of things that's happened just in the last 24 hours, so we know what the Fed did yesterday. They did 75 basis points and it was expected, but man, you gotta go back to 94, right? And who won the Stanley Cup in 94? Do you guys remember? The Rangers. Rangers. The Rangers, yeah. Mark Messier, he was- Canucks uh, riot, The Canucks fans rioted, first riot. <laughs> when was the last time the Canucks won the Stanley Cup there, Steve? Come on, dude. <laughs> I'm not a Canucks fan, so I don't really care. It's a trick question. Big, Sorry. big goose egg. Uh, do we have bird? Yeah, we're we're old for two. Two riots. Um, so yeah, the okay. Loss, the losses don't go over well here. Just like the losses in real estate, man. People are people are going to take to the streets here pretty soon. Right. Keith, a, hey, Keith back on track yeah. here. Okay. 
So in, uh, I don't know where I was going. Okay, so we had the Fed yesterday. I'm talking about everything around the world is, is synchronized with an opportunity to either hit rock bottom and we swing up again, or one of these markets will break which would then cause everything else to sort of, you know, reset in, in, a, in the opposite direction would be positive. But uh, so we had the Fed yesterday. This morning, out of the blue, the Swiss, or the, by the way, the Swiss franc, we call it the Swissy. And no one ever talks about the Swissy anymore because it's just sort of irrelevant. Uh, but the Swiss franc, they hiked interest rates by 50 basis points this morning, all the way up to minus 25 basis points. <laughs> I mean, God, <laughs> my God, Dude, right? That's... Somebody, somebody on Twitter was trying to tell me because uh, I was talking about the bull, which we're going to talk about. But I was talking about the eurozone uh, monetary policy, and they're like, "Yeah, well, their job is to fight inflation." I was like, "So they're going to raise rates from negative 0.5 to zero with inflation at eight percent?" Like, yeah, they're really showing that they're fighting inflation. Anyways, Keith, continue on. Sorry to interrupt you there. Um, okay. Yeah, so this, again, we're just demonstrating that if you're just in Canada and you're just seeing the Canadian show that's happening, I'm telling you, this is happening everywhere at the same time because the world has really, it, it's reached this end of this, you know, Keynesian economic theory that they've been using since World War II. So the Swiss raised interest rates automatically, the, the Swiss, uh, the Swissies starts appreciating 2% against the dollar. Right away, then the uh, the Swiss National Bank guy comes out and says, "Well, we might have to start selling Swissy to to make the currency weaker again." A again, like it's just total fantasy fantasy land like experience that we're having. So we have that there in Switzerland. Then the Bank of England, you know, they came out. Everyone was expecting them to do fifty basis points. No, they only did twenty five because you know, in typical British, you know. Uh, business strategy, they got together in their meeting and no one could agree on what to do. So they just had to have it. And uh, so I think it was nine to zero before. the vote though, Keith, they all agreed happily, <laughs> if you believe that. Oh, I, I, I read it was actually split. 50, oh, 50, I'm looking 50, at it right 20. now. It was nine to zero, but I mean, it, it doesn't yeah. matter. It, that's, that's just, you know, that's just theater. They're telling you on the CBC. It was but anyway, keep going, keep going. There's lots of other yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We have that going. And, uh, and then I don't even know which one to hit next. We'll do Europeans next because then the, the last one is Keith hates the Europeans. The no, well, I, yeah, I the, the Europeans, Europeans and the Japanese, but take, take it away with the Europeans. Okay, so uh, a few shows ago, we talked about we could potentially have this situation in Europe with the ECB where they'll be raising interest rates and putting QE, becoming more aggressive with QE at the same time which makes no sense whatsoever in any kind of economic or monetary theory. But yesterday, the ECB, they called an emergency meeting, which is, which is you know, again, that's what they do when, when things are really in trouble. But they put to, they're already putting together a plan and how they're going to bail out the Italy, uh, Italy's sovereign debt. So yields in Italy are now surging, just skyrocketing. So there, there's no one to buy it. It's only the ECB, ECB that buys it. So they're trying to come out with a plan. How, okay, how can we rescue Italy and then raise rates at the same time? And in, in typical European fashion, what they decided to do was that with the current QE program, right now they're reinvesting everything. 
what they what they're going to do is that instead so when the german bond when it matures instead of reinvesting it in another german bond they decided we'll take that money and we'll buy italian debt with it instead of course the germans are going to lose it right if they try to put this through saying this the french will lose it it's just anyway that's what the europeans are doing and then sort of complete this tour of the world next we have the japanese and we know that Whoa. the japanese hold on oh, a minute well, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't tell the listeners what the what the ECB is calling it. So they're not calling it QE; they're calling it the anti-fragmentation tool. They are outstanding. It's, it's like it's, it's Keith. Do you know the show? Yes, Prime Minister. No, I don't. Oh, okay. Well, this joke's not going to go down that well. But anyways, Yes, Prime Minister is a show about the Prime Minister of England and then his civil servants, basically, and they invent all kinds of euphemisms. For all different types of programs, I would recommend it to anybody who likes politics, even a smidge. It's a really funny show from the 80s. Anyway, carry on. Anti-fragmentation tool. Keith, take it away. I don't know where to go with it. I mean, uh, so again, all you need to know with, with Europe and the ECB, it is the economic fantasy land called Europe. And again, the very simple point here, they haven't even raised rates yet. And they've already had to have an emergency meeting on how to bail out a member state because of what could happen if they do raise rates. So it's, so, you know, it's tough there. Let me, let me just interject there with a little bit of just a, an information that I think some people might not have picked up on. So you said that rates have risen in Italy. They have also have in Spain. But we also talked about how rates have risen everywhere. But what Keith is specifically speaking to is the spread of Spain and Italy and other periphery countries over the German Bund, which is like sort of the, that excess premium that you have to pay to borrow, to lend, sorry, to, uh, to, for that they have to pay to borrow money from the market. So it's not just that Italy's rate went up, it's that Italy's rate over the German Bund yield has gone up a lot. I think uh, it's something like 150 odd basis points in six months or whatever. And that's incredible given the German... 10-year bond has gone up 200 basis points in six months, which is the biggest six-month move since reunification. So even on top of that spike in German bonds, Italian bonds have gone up even more. And that's what's freaking out the ECB. We're back sort of back to 2014 fears of, you know, break Euro breakup. And that's why they needed to create this new wait. program called the anti-fragmentation program or whatever it is sorry keith back back to but that. no i was gonna say but wait it gets better we got we got japan so keith and right. i continue oh, on with your around the horn uh prognosis of these debt bombs blowing up yeah so it's uh so i, I know we 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 introduced this concept a couple of shows ago as well so in, in japan what happened the interest rate on their 10-year bonds started to go up as well. And Japan has the second largest, the second largest debt issuance or borrowing in the world. Americans are first, then it's the Japanese, and then it's the Italians. That's the order is for outstanding debt. Uh, so Japan, they made a decision that, hey, if, if interest rates go up, uh, it, it's really gonna like just crush our banks because their balance sheets are stuffed with, with bonds. Same with the insurance companies, the pension funds that have all government bonds in it. So they say, you know, we just cannot allow interest rates to rise. So by doing that, it leaves the door open for the currency to weaken because it has, that's the release valve. That's the way it works. 
So, uh, you know, the Japanese yen has been one of the worst performing currencies over the last few weeks. And then finally this morning, it got to a point where there's rumors coming out that, hey, we now have to do something to, to fix the currency. Because what, what we don't realize over here, so I talk a lot about how the US dollar is a giant wrecking ball. And it's just swinging back and forth, like hitting the Europeans, hitting the Japanese and Chinese and going back to the Europeans again. What's happening in Asia with the yen weakening so much, that's become a wrecking ball in, in Asia because everyone is exporting stuff. Now, all of a sudden, the Japanese have this, this huge advantage and it's putting other countries at a disadvantage. So th there's a lot of stuff moving here right now. So this morning, the yen is, is rebounding dramatically. There's stress on the Japanese 10-year yield to go up. And I know Rich saw one of the biggest chart crimes we've seen a long time there earlier on, on Twitter. Uh, but again, I just want to demonstrate that this whole world right now, it, it, it's synchronized. And it's, it's synchronized so tight that, you know, someone's going to blink and somebody will make a contrarian move coming up. And uh, so for us from the investment manager, I, I, you know, we're actually getting ready to allocate to a market. I won't say right now until after we get the trade done. But uh, we, we see a, a near term opportunity in one of the markets that's just been completely blown out on, on the sentiment side and, and move as well. But that's what markets like this, that's what creates those opportunities. So just in one more thing about Japan, I think we don't, I think people often forget that Japan's the third largest economy in the world. And so when you have an extremely important exporter, it's also an important um, lender. So, you know, in the past, they've had a huge, huge current account surpluses, and they've recycled that and lent to other countries. Um, and, you know, the, the cycle goes on and on. So when, when you do have these moves in Japan, um, even though, you know, it doesn't, might not make the CBC or the Global Mail headlines, these are big, big deals, basically. Um, and so that's why we always, I think we, Keith does a good job of always bringing us back and talking about Japan, because even though it's not as exciting as other countries or close in proximity or proximity in terms of culture, it's definitely an important thing to keep an eye on with respect to from like the macro perspective. So what, I don't know, Steve. Keith, well, I was going to ask Keith, what do you think the, the BOJ is going to do? I'm just, I'm just on the, on the Google machine here. So it says here that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Rich, maybe you know, but uh, Japanese inflation rose 1.9% year over year in May. 64% um, of Japanese are unhappy with government response to rising prices. Uh, <laughs> Who is? I mean, one point nine percent doesn't sound too bad, but uh, obviously Japan's been mirrored in, in in decade plus of of basically zero inflation, deflation really. Um, what what is what is what is the, what's the what's the outcome here? Like, do they got do these guys try to defend their yield curve control peg here, and just does it you know currency just sort of keep debasing? And like at some point, like again, there's got to be. Someone's got to give, but on either side. But I mean, if you're a policymaker, what, what do you think? I mean, is, again, or maybe is there coordination with the Fed? Like, are these guys on the on the call with with Jay Powell and saying, "Hey, buddy, like, you know, we got to fix this." Well, I just so, yeah. just for the the number. I mean, on the inflation thing, it, it's my number is two point two, but it depends if you're using Tokyo or the rest or whatever it is. But it, Japan's just not used to inflation. <laughs> For a number of different reasons, it can't handle it. We talked about the bond issues. Um, 
nor is it something in their psychology that, you know, I mean, in the US, you know, you, you, it's a, just a different, I mean, we often, we often think that it's just numbers, figures and data, but so much of, of these sort of economic issues um, are political and cultural issues. Um, and, you know, in the US, people are sort of used to inflation. I would argue in the UK, people are, are used to even higher inflation. UK has had a high, much higher trend inflation than either the US or Europe or certainly Japan. And so, you know, when it comes to things like, you know, negotiating for wages or union expectations from unions and stuff like that, um, all of that is sort of, is, is all, there's, there's sort of a legacy, these legacy numbers and legacy issues that are just like not really sort of quote unquote mentally or culturally prepared for inflation of five and six and 7%. Um, and so that's, you know, we, we often sort of, we sort of shunt that and forget about that side. But anyway, I just wanted to, to add that a little bit, Keith, if you had something to add on Japan. I think, uh, remember the Karate Kid, Mr. Mr. Miyagi? Miyagi, wax on, wax yeah. off. He's, he's going to have to rub his hands together and, and try to heal a, a few God. things. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what I suspect will happen, so first of all, the Japanese cannot survive with the yen coming down this much or continue to go lower because they have to import, you know, like all the energy. Yeah, all the energy has to be imported in. Uh, so that will be a huge contributor to inflation for those guys. So I, I suspect what will happen, they'll just sort of raise the bar a little bit, Steve, on the uh, the yield curve control. So go from 25 basis points to maybe 30. You guys don't realize, but a few years back, they settled at 12 basis points. Yep. They, they have done it before. That was a bit of a soft line in the sand. This one was much harder. So I think, you know, they'll try to dance their way out of it. I guess it just comes down to market confidence then if people say well maybe these guys are losing control they have to push from 25 to 30 beeps and it's just kind of it's just a slippery slope basically well that's the that's the other thing about the letting the currency go first of all you cannot deflate your pro deflate yourself to prosperity you know i mean that's i mean this idea that you can just deflate your way out of all your problems i think is a very dangerous game especially when you're in japan you have zero energy you have zero refining capacity as well. Most of the oil in that region, not if I'm not mistaken, is refined in South Korea for some reason. I don't know why, but I do know South Korea refines a shitload of oil. Um, the other thing that I think that's really important is Japan. Um, but the other thing, the, the dangerous thing about Japan deflating their currency is that you get something called a currency war. And this is a concept that was discussed maybe four, five, six, seven years ago. And everybody was worried about a currency war. And it never really materialized not sure why exactly maybe keith can shed light on that specifically but you know it doesn't mean that it won't materialize this time around when i think there's much more pressure um much worse dislocations and i think you know japan is an exporter country um like i said it's got a pretty solid current account surplus and um if they start you know get gaining market share by tanking their currency i i, I would suspect that a lot of other countries in that region will be like hey that sounds like a great idea let's do that too and, and sort of follow suit which is i think a dangerous game for people to play yeah that's true uh what is a little bit different today though is that these currency movements they're not being orchestrated by the central bank saying hey let's let's get market share by doing this or that instead it's a result of or it's a reaction of just all the factors are just so bad everywhere else in the country. That's what's driving it lower. So once again, like, I don't think, yen is not a race to zero. I, I think yen is going to 
maybe bouncing here this week, bottoming for a little bit. Remember, guys, markets are very dynamic. Everything is connected globally. You get big moves and one to the other. So we look at a lot of sentiment data. And uh, like Japanese yen, the 10-year bond in any country, like sentiment is, you know, it's, uh, if you know the DSI numbers, uh, these things are on like four and five and six. So it's it's pretty low. So uh, anyway, we, we might that, get- His phone's ringing a margin call. Yeah, that's- about the margin Brent, call. <laughs> that's Brent Johnson calling me. I think saying, that's the hey, first, I think you always drink. That's the first time that we've ever, uh, that's ever happened on us, on our on our pod. You always drink, Keith. <laughs> The ultimate boomer. Why? Why do I owe you a drink? Because yeah. you let your phone ring when we're recording the podcast. Oh yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm on a Man, different setup here. Let's not forget. That's can I can I give a, a quick roundup of other stuff that I've noticed? Just like basically just riffing off of what Keith has talked about. Um, he he sort of talked about policy issues and but there's some market stuff that I thought were interesting and that I think our listeners um, might want to be uh, might want to talk about, which is a couple of things that I thought were. Interesting is um, we haven't really talked about this before, but some, there's something called a credit default swap. Um, and there's some credit default swaps that have been spiking for certain retailers like Kohl's, I think the Gap, Walmart is at like an 18th or two year high. So what's a credit default swap? I'm going to fire this up Carv- basically. But it's basically. Yeah, it's insurance basically on whether or not a credit instrument will default. And you can... Um, you can purchase this insurance and the price of that insurance is obviously commensurate with the probability that the, the, that the, the instrument you buy defaults. And so you purchase insurance to protect yourself from that, um, that outcome. So that's spite. We talked about spreads. Um, we talked about metals, which is interesting. So something I'd really track as far as like to see whether or not I mean, we haven't mentioned the R word yet, but something that I'm really tracking is like industrial metals. Are they are they falling? Agriculture prices have started to fall. So that's that's also interesting. And then the VIX. So there's different volatility measures that I look at. One of them is um, something called the VIX volatility, which tracks like the volatility of whether the, it's the DAX or I think there's an S&P TSX VIX. And then there's the, obviously the S&P 500 one. And that's that's elevated. But interestingly, the it's nowhere near elevated. Uh, nowhere near as elevated as something called the move index, which is bond volatility, which is something, I mean, which is just incredible. I mean, so how, how high it's, it is, it's nearly as high as it was during the, the, the COVID, like the depth of the COVID um, pandemic. So yeah, just other stuff that's across my sort of across my radar. Well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to kind of ask you guys. So, <clears throat> I mean, I think it's like, we've kind of highlighted here just to, in sort of summary is basically, that, you know, while here in, in Canada, we're always so focused about, you know, housing and Canadian households being levered. I think everyone's sort of subtly forgot that, you know, there's other parts of the world that exists and we have these massive sovereign debt bubbles um, that are sort of flashing red right now. And whether that's in Italy or whether that's in Japan, um, that, you know, it becomes extremely difficult to normalize interest rate policy when you have a highly levered global economy. And, you know, so... I guess sort of my one question for that is like how much, and we, I think we've talked about this before, but like it just, to me, it just becomes increasingly, I know central banks have these inflation targets, right? Like that's their mandate, you know, 2% inflation, whatever, two, 3% inflation. But it's like, it becomes extremely difficult to actually like fight inflation when you have debt levels this high. 
because you basically trigger and blow something up. So my question here is basically, you know, this is a good, uh, good tweet here from Larry McDonald of the bear traps report. So he, you know, he talks about the S and P 500 drawdowns and, and basically the wealth destruction that we've seen in the cycle so far. So he says, um, you know, in 2008, we had about $8.1 trillion worth of wealth wiped out. In 2020, it was about 9.8. He says in 2022, we're at about $9.3 trillion of wealth destruction. But he makes the important note, which is that, you know, at least in sort of 2008 and, and 2020, um, you know, bond, bonds made investors back $3 trillion and $4 trillion respectively. But this time, obviously, we're seeing the sell-off in the bond market as well. So he says, if you count for that, you already have about $14 trillion worth of wealth destruction this cycle. I mean, you can lump crypto into that as well. So my question is, you're basically at, let's say, again, these are basically ballpark numbers. Let's call it $15 trillion worth of wealth destruction. Um, at what point does this become like bad policy? And you have to like, I know, so you have to get inflation down. I get it. Everyone's like, inflation's not good. We know that. But like the Keynes, this Keynesian economic system is so far gone. Like, again, like in order to bring inflation down, like they, they just started hiking rates. We haven't even really begun QT. Like what did it start a week and a half ago? Like, and we've already eviscerated 15. So I'm just kind of curious, like at what point does this become bad policy or the wrong policy? Like there, there must be a threshold. Like it's like, cause again, you could just keep jacking rates and like maybe inflation doesn't get back down to because like energy prices and, and whatnot. So. The first thing that we all need to appreciate is that none of these central bankers today, none of them have experienced inflation like this. It just, it hasn't happened. And despite all of their aggressive moves over the last 12 plus years in, in the West anyway, that wasn't enough to create inflation. The only thing that created inflation were, were the, the combination of uh, the policy responses from the, from the COVID pandemic and then the lockdowns at the same time. So I, I think they know that raising rates doesn't, it's not, not gonna be the, the move that brings inflation down. Instead, and this is where I think Rich and I have a bit of a different view. And I, I you know, I've said before, I do the, opportunities there for them to really crush the economy hard, bring us into a deep recession. And that's what will bring uh, inflation down. And, you know, nobody wins at that game either. It's a mess, guys. I don't know how they get out of this. Rich is much more optimistic on, on the economy than, than I am. But I, I think we are headed for uh, some pretty low numbers coming up, whether it's very soon or, you know, here in uh, Q3 slash 4. Rich, yeah, Rich, yeah, Rich thinks like Rich thinks we're gonna get seven percent growth coming up. No, come on. <laughs> I only smoke joints after the podcast. Um, but on on the value thing, I think it's important. I think it's important to like take a step back. You know, it, easy come, easy go, right? I mean, you know, two years ago or three years ago, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, if someone had said, "Oh, the markets are gonna rip thirty percent on no growth." Because essentially, that's what we had. And no one would have been complaining. Everybody, you know, everybody would have been like, okay, thanks. I'll cash my check and go buy, uh, you know, tickets to the hockey game or whatever it is. And now I think you have, and, and I think that that's, you know, it, it's non-linear, right? As you get, you know, when you think of, when you think of how to, you know, how to value 
a, per, you know, a, a value of stock, you know, we, I talked about this during the Looney Hour Live, right? You got V equals E divided by R. And, um, you know, you have your earnings and then you, you have your interest rate. And as you get closer and closer and closer to zero, that leverage starts to really, really, really kick in your, the leverage or EG, like the smaller and smaller that interest rate, the, the, the leverage in the system gets, gets larger and larger and larger, you know, and, and as you get a closer to zero, that B starts to expand really, really rapidly. And as you move away from zero, which is what we're sort of dealing with right now, your, your value, that V in that formula starts to contract. And, and I think it's important that sort of to remember sort of where we were, why we did it for right or wrong. And then sort of the dislocation that we're dealing with, you know, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the S&P 500 is still, you know, 5% above its 200 day moving average of 3,500. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, um, and most of the decline so far um, in the S&P or other, um, you know, stock price indices has not been from earnings. It's been from the PE ratio. Right. So it's the value that you ascribe to those earnings, which is basically fallen in lockstep with the rise in real interest rates. And so all I'm trying to say is, yes, like lots of people are losing money and it's not great, obviously, but it, it's kind of funny in a way you could almost argue it was sort of funny money. It wasn't really not yours to begin with, but, you know, it was a direct result of hyper, hyper loose monetary policy and moving away from that. Yeah, it's painful. I get it. But, you know, like I said, easy come, easy go. And, and then as far as when the central banks, um, you know, will, will stop or is it a policy mistake? I think for such a long time, capital has absorbed more and more and more of global GDP. And I think that capital is, you know, is set to lose. I mean, that's what happens when you have left-wing governments that, make really stupid energy policy or, you know, left-wing governments that insist on taxing this company or that company or raising taxes. And then you have labor market, which has suffered, you know, basically for a generation, if you look at, you know, employee compensation as a percent of GDP versus, you know, um, non-financial corporate profits as a percent of GDP, you know, those jaws have opened up and opened up and opened up. And the reason I think I'm a little bit more sanguine on the economy, just like going forward is because as you know, just because the stock market's losing and corporate profits are falling as a percent of GDP, you know, I don't think growth just goes to zero. I think that labor boosted by labor shortages, boosted by age dependency ratios can start to gobble up more and more and more of that, um, that, that pie. Again, maybe I'm an optimist, but I think that that's an important consideration. I think it's just, you know, it, it's, it's, I, that's why I don't think necessarily we're in, in it for it, in for it when it comes to the economy. I think that the, the labor piece, I think, is really, really strong for a bunch of reasons we've discussed on in this platform before. And, and, and so that's just something I, I think it's important to consider. Yeah. So I just look at it and say, well, I think definitely it's definitely part of like a healthy cleanse. But again, it's kind of like, at what point does this have the deeper ramifications? Which is Right. Like, on sentiment and consumer confidence. Well, I mean, I'm. I'm looking more so, and again, I know, like, again, these are the companies that were obviously, you know, fairy tale valuations and stuff, but like, we are clearly seeing that, like, there are cutting jobs now, right? Like, you've got, again, I know everyone's going to get all hissy about this, but like, okay, so like Coinbase laying off, LockFi, Redfin, Compass, 
Um, I mean, there's so many, so many of these big sort of tech names that are, are publicly announcing, you know, what is it? Tesla is cutting 10% of their workforce. Like oh, all these like companies that are slowly. And again, I think that's probably good to start where it's like, okay, we're getting rid of some of the excess there, you know, some of these tech names are maybe being starved of capital. So they've got to trim down and be smarter with their, with their capital allocation. That's probably better in the long run for, for productivity. But at some point this sort of reverberates into further, uh, further job layoffs, further wealth destruction as these corporates have to pay, you know, higher debt servicing costs and payments. Like the first thing that they're going to do is, I mean, it's a highly levered private corporate sector too, right? Like, I mean, especially in Canada, we've talked about this, but like, so if you're a highly levered company in, in Canada, like, what do you do in the face of like your debt servicing payments, basically doubling is the reality is like the first thing they're going to look to do is cut people. And that might not happen right away, but like, I think that's to me is inevitable. And people, people always, again, I always like, I'm saying this very like subtly. It was like, the, the funny thing is like, I always just try to look at this like agnostically and holistically is like, people always like get frustrated about like Canadian housing. And I get it. Cause it's like, it's the, the valuations here are a joke, but like, they're always like, Oh yeah, I can't wait for this to blow up. And then I'm going to go out and buy like, you know, a house that's 60% off sale. It's like, buddy, like if it drops 50% and rates are at 8%, I was like, you're probably not going to have a job. So can I, so I think you're making a really, really good point. And I, and I think it's important to just hear an alternative way yeah. again with my rose tinted glasses on an alternative way that you can square the circle. And the alternative way I think is, is, is margins. And I say, why do you say margins? Cause margins basically are, are at their peak. They're at all time highs, whether you calculate margins, you know, from a national income level whether you calculate margins from a production approach, whether you literally take the S&P 500 operating margins as um, over basically all time, they're at all time highs. So what's margin? Margin is the number is profits over sales. Um, and so, and, and then the reason I bring that up is because I think we cannot discount the degree to which companies are struggling for, to meet labor demand. Uh, labor shortages are, are struggling. And I think that the way that companies do that is, and again, forgive my, you know, maybe optimistic view on this, but the way we square the circle in a different sort of light is to say companies will just take the margin hit and not, not get rid of their employees. And they've done this before and they've done the opposite as well, right? In 2008, it was a jobless recovery where margins soared. There was an excess labor um, demand was okay. Well, I mean, it re demand recovered. So companies' margins went up. There was nobody employed. It was a jobless recovery. You can have a situation where it's sort of the opposite is true, where companies don't let go of employees because they're such a pain in the ass to replace and they get crushed on the margins, on the margin end of that quotient. And again, values come down, stocks come down, people do lose money. But Again, I think that the labor market being in a much, much stronger position is different than what we've seen in, in other cycles. I don't know, Keith might think I'm I mean, yeah, smoking I, I, drugs I, or whatever, but <laughs> I think that's a fair, very fair re rebuttal. I mean, uh, one of my favorite guys, Kirill Sokolov of 13Bs, that's certainly his argument as well, that uh, the, the bargaining power is going to go back to, it's going to shift away uh, from a larger secular sec, uh, position is going to position back to the labor and not so much the capital so i mean keith i don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that or i think here in, in canada what i'll what i will be looking for next to see if banks do layoffs 
yeah. as soon as the banks do that, that's when you know, okay, there's something happening because guys banks have better visibility than than anyone else out there like they have their you think about like their 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 clients and customers are the guys that are running the economy so every single industry and sector that's out there they're lending money to because they've lent money to them they're speaking with them every day they got their you know fingers on the pulse uh so if we are going to go to a slowing economy that's coming up and, and again i think it's like 99 percent probable that's where we're going and um i don't think we can stop it i think that's where we are ahead but watch for banks and what they do with they would be that because like all the layoffs that you just listed there steve uh, like that's, that's in the the tech space if you want to call it that and uh some people will say well you know they weren't real companies they didn't have real earnings and stuff it doesn't matter you have thousands of people that are no longer getting that paycheck that that's that's happening right now but watch for the banks and what they do. And then you'll say, okay, yeah, this is now getting a bit more serious with it. Well, yeah, I mean, one thing to kind of point out is um, most of these Canadian banks, like everybody knows, like the housing bull market we've had over the past couple of years, um, they, even so more recently, because these guys tend to be like, they tend to kind of almost like work on a lag, like the housing market takes off and then you start hiring people afterwards. So a lot of these banks, like a lot of these lenders actually doubled their uh, mortgage employees because like they couldn't keep up. Like if you remember at the height of the housing uh, bull market here, like mortgage brokers and banks approving loans was so was taking so long. Like if you, if you submitted an application for like a mortgage at like a credit union, it'd be like three weeks, which would normally be like three days. Uh, so a lot of them ended up uh, basically doubling their uh, labor force um, in order to in order to uh, you know get through the uh, the crunch there. And obviously now, like we're expecting, uh, we're expecting probably mortgage credit growth to get chopped in half here, given given not only where rates are, but buyer sentiment and then of course like the increasing mortgage stress test so uh i certainly think there's going to be some pain there but we'll have to watch that and that certainly hasn't happened yet but to, to keith's point i think it's something worth watching i just want to add one more thing on the just just so just we're so we're clear i'm fully aware that and, and it's keith you outlined like sort of a concrete example but just like more philosophically labor markets are lagging indicators just as a general rule i don't want people to write in the comments that i don't know that i'm aware i just think labor shortages are are acute this time and should not be overlooked but i don't know um, is there anything else that we need to we need to cover today uh, well, I mean, I'd love to, uh, other than the sure. censoring of any anti-renewable, uh, <laughs> well, I was going to say tweets. we probably lost the, our last left-leaning <laughs> listeners, Rich, after you, uh, bash them there. But, um, no, we, we love everybody. And, and, uh, regardless of your political views, the show has always been about, you know, just helping and educating people and just chatting, you know, having a good time chatting about markets. And, and we always wanted to, to the vibe to be like, the three of us sitting at a bar and then you guys maybe just, you know, you know, sitting there and listening in like a fly in the wall. Um, you know, we always wanted to have that, you know, be the, the water cooler conversation piece, so to speak. And, um, but yeah, speaking I mean, of that, I, the comments have been great. I have to say, I'm really kind of impressed with everybody's engagement and just, 
it's number one, the civility, <laughs> which we, well, I really appreciate being as thin skinned as I am. And definitely the, con the just the contribution and the questions have been really, really solid. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, for sure. And then, uh, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't mind just touching briefly on uh, maybe closer to wrapping this up here, but I think there's a lot happening behind the scenes, which maybe I know there's a lot of probably listeners here that aren't involved in that space, but like, I think there's a lot happening in the crypto space. Um, it's, it's pretty ugly. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly well versed in it. I'm certainly not an expert, but I, I definitely follow along pretty closely. You know, I've got sort of some long-term positions there. So, um, you know, I've tried to educate myself as much as possible on that, but I mean, two things basically. So one of them is there's a, there's a lending company called Celsius, Celsius network. Um, I, and it, funny enough, as I was joking with these guys in the group chat is I pulled my fund. I had a bunch of funds with them, not all my crypto, but I had a bunch of them. I pulled all of it about two weeks ago. Cause I was like, there's all these like rumors circulating. And I was, I was always like a little bit skeptical of the company, but I was like, yeah, you know, put a little bit in. So I pulled everything two weeks ago. And so basically what they did is they gated uh, everyone's funds. They're now under like liquidity. They basically have had a bank run. Um, so they were basically taking in crypto deposits from, from, you know, retail people, whatever, and then lending it out and putting it into these various um, decentralized platforms to basically generate yield and, and basically pay people back, you know, a dividend or a yield, so to speak. So uh, they basically have gated uh, all their deposits. So there's, there's no out. Um, I, and then basically they're, they're basically getting margin called right now. So they're in all these e-liquid sort of uh, platforms. And as the price of, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and all this stuff comes down, um, they're, yeah, they're getting their margin calls. So there's that. And then there's the other company, which is Three Arrows Capital, which is, I think, one of the, apparently they're one of the largest, most respected crypto hedge funds. I believe it's, in, I believe they're in Singapore. Uh, but people, apparently people had a lot of respect for the founder, but anyways, they're, they're coming under pressure. Apparently they lost some money, not all, they lost a lot of money in Luna and, and, and then again, obviously with the, the carnage, which is happening in the crypto space, you know, there's been some, there's been some rumors and circulation around, uh, micro strategy, right? I mean, they leverage their balance sheet to buy Bitcoin. I think Tesla now has an, a, a, an impairment on their balance sheet for, for Bitcoin because they're, they're below their, uh, their, their purchase price there. So, I mean, Keith, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but there's been a lot of wealth destruction in the crypto space. The one thing I will say is there is, and it, it's, it's all kind of like this unregulated thing. And, and the, there is an insane amount of leverage in the crypto space on a lot of these like decentralized um, platforms, basically. You know, I, I don't have much to say about it. I feel I really empathize with people who have losses out there because people have allocated a lot of the wealth to it and, and you know now they have losses. Um, I don't know what to say. I just feel bad. I, I don't have any view on whether it's good value at this point or anything like that. I just think it's another example of a market that went into a euphoria and now it's you know you're getting the mirrored reaction to it. So uh, it is a market that's on our so, so for IceCap, we always have markets that we want to buy. You know, they're on our list. We had different levels that so we'd be more comfortable with it. And uh, like using Bitcoin as the generic market for it, uh, it's there. We're, we're getting closer to where we would be interested. Um, I know I gave out that number in Vancouver. So I think we're getting, you know, closer here by the, by the day maybe. But, uh, you know, it's sort of similar to 
all investors this year, like people have lost a lot of money. And so if you're to say you were planning to retire this fall and you were, so the biggest, the biggest balanced mutual fund in, in the country is run by the, the bank with, with the color blue and uh, it's billions of dollars in it. But that's down about 15% this year, uh, one five. And, um, but if you have your wealth in that or that kind of a strategy and then you, know, you lost 15%, all of a sudden you're thinking, my God, like, I don't think I can retire now. Like, again, like this, the, the losses in the market right now, they're, I feel really bad for everyone out there because it is changing lives and people always have to remember, you know, there are real people behind it. I don't know what else to say, really. Yeah, that's well, yeah. I, I mean, I can just say uh, anecdotally, I had a, I've had a couple of clients this year, like young people, uh, young clients that actually made a lot of money in crypto, got out at the right time, used, uh, used a lot of those profits to, to actually fund uh, their first real estate purchase, mm-hmm. put, a, put a roof over their head instead of renting. So, um, you know, and now, again, if you, a lot of those people, had they not and they waited, uh, you know, again, wouldn't, uh, would be sitting there with, with, with losses. Right. So I think it's all a relative game. Again, when we talk about, you know, 15 trillion, whatever has been, you know, sort of evaporized, uh, this year, I mean, there's, there's all these sort of like knock on effects, not just from a sentiment and psychological perspective, but, um, again, maybe you feel like, as Keith said, maybe you feel a little bit less wealthy and maybe like, well, maybe I'll work one extra year. Like, I think we all remember those stories, right? Like, during the pandemic where all these like boomers were retiring, uh, you know, their stock portfolios were way up and everyone was feeling good and say, you know what, maybe I'll just retire. Right. And my house also just went up 30% last year. So, and again, I think with a lot of these uh, paper gains uh, now being sort of wiped out that maybe it will draw some, some of the boomers back into the labor force. Keith sticking with us. So, yeah. That's, so, uh, I- Guys, I do have to run. I have some important meetings to go to. Very important meetings. He's got a couple. He's in Calgary, a couple of rodeos here. Um, all right. Well, uh, we'll wrap it up there. As always, we uh, we appreciate your support. All we ask that you share this with one uh, one person to continue to build a Luna, Luna Hour community. And we'll see you next week.